0: Listening to sermon audio from Grace Mosaic, a congregation of the Grace DC Network in Northeast DC. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org. The last 20 months have brought what is probably the most sustained reflection on our own mortality that we have experienced in our lives as the statistics on COVID have continued to pile up and deaths have continued to come in and more and more stories are told of otherwise healthy people succumbing to the virus, we've all been made to feel our vulnerability just a little bit more. The pretensions of modernity have been temporarily suspended. We have actually just started to begin the process of catching up with the rest of the world. The rest of the world is in tune with death and loss. There is no beautiful barrier separating most people in the world from the reality of death, the finality of death, the difficulty and the heartache of death. We have been confronted. I don't know about you, but... For quite a while in the pandemic, it wasn't difficult for my mind to go down the road of thinking that death was stalking me. That if I might accidentally touch a doorknob and rub my eye, or if someone might get a little too close and breathe on me or cough on me, that that could be the beginning of the end. And that's what makes it so amazing and so timely That this fall we found ourselves in a series entitled Salvation's Greatest Hits. Because we are in need of the teaching concerning how all of the scriptures lead us to the great salvation that is in Jesus Christ. That's why it's been so timely that we have jumped into some of these amazing texts to consider how these passages shape Christian spirituality. If you remember back when we started this series, all the way back in September, feels like dog years. But we began by looking at the account of creation, being reminded of all the different contours and the dynamics and the facets of the creation narrative so that they could inform our understanding of what it means that God speaks of a new creation in the work of salvation. We went on to consider the call of Abraham. And we looked at the blessing that God promised to Abraham and how that blessing has met its fulfillment in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And from there, we went up the mountain with Abraham and Isaac to consider what God has done to provide for our greatest need. We then joined the Israelites in Egypt and we came to appreciate the wonder and the majesty of what God has done in the work of redemption. Being reminded that redemption is not just a generic term for salvation. It is the freeing of slaves from slavery. That God is our redeemer and we have been set free. We considered the uniform of the priesthood and how it pointed to the ministry of the priesthood. And we spent some time exploring that most profound day, the Day of Atonement, where God provided a way of taking and removing the sins of his people through sacrifice, but also through the scapegoat. And we were led to the greater sacrifice, the greater atonement, and the more glorious scapegoat, knowing that we, when we set our eyes on Christ, watched our sin and our guilt disappear from view. Good news indeed. We considered God's work through the King, who goes to battle for his fearful people to free us from enemies that we could never defeat with a power unmatched. We also considered last week the prophet's word of healing and the simplicity of salvation. And today, all of our discussion of this salvific work, this saving work of God and Jesus Christ, we're going to bring it to a fitting conclusion by engaging with the text of Ezekiel 37 this morning. As we bring this series to a close today, we're going to end on the theme of hope in Ezekiel 37. We're going to work through this text with three points this morning. We're going to see a catastrophe, a question, and a comfort. We're going to work through this text and we're just going to organize the text with these three points. where we consider this catastrophe in the text, the question that's in the text, and then the comfort that's in the text. So let's look at our first point where we see a catastrophe. This entire point is drawn from verses 1 and 2. Ezekiel was a prophet who was called by the Lord to prophesy to his rebellious people in the context of their exile in Babylon. When God made his covenant with his people, that covenant came with Blessings that would be given to faith and curses that would be given to unbelief. There were stipulations that the Lord clearly laid out. If you want an example of that, you can look at Deuteronomy chapter 28 and 29, where God spells out what he would do if they trusted in him. They would be blessed in the city. They would be blessed in the field. They would be blessed when they come in, blessed when they go out. But if they turn from the Lord, they would be Cursed in the city, cursed in the field, cursed when they came in and cursed when they went out. And sure enough, as the time of the kings continued to wear on, the people went astray. And so the Lord brought on them the judgment of the covenant and his people were split. There were now... Two different kingdoms, as it were. And the north was taken into captivity by Assyria in the 8th century. And in the 6th century, the south, Judah, was taken into captivity by Babylon. This second captivity is the context of Ezekiel. And it was a dire situation. The Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem... They destroyed the temple. They killed many people. And then to add insult to injury, they made the remaining survivors migrate to Babylon. They took them from their homeland. They were a strange people in a strange land. And now they were living with those frustrated longings for home. Frustrated longings to be able to go back to the temple. Theirs was a dire and desperate situation. And this was after years of warfare that caused famine and disease and a staggering loss of hope. It's in this context of death and destruction that the prophet Ezekiel speaks God's message to God's desperate people. And this passage before us today is the third of four visions that the Lord gave to Ezekiel. The hand of the Lord comes upon Ezekiel and gives him a vision in which he is placed in the middle of a valley. And what Ezekiel sees in the valley is striking for at least three reasons. First, this valley is filled with bones Suggesting that a major catastrophe took place here. A devastating catastrophe. I would imagine it's something akin to wandering into a wide open field in one of those ancient battles between warring armies and just seeing a field covered with death. A place completely covered in destruction. The sheer volume of human remains is overwhelming to Ezekiel. He says, you'll notice in verse 1, that the valley was full of bones. It was full. Second, the bones lay on the surface of the valley like the remains of corpses denied a proper burial and left for the scavengers. If you remember just a few weeks ago, when David and Goliath were were trading taunts, do you remember what they taunted one another with? (laughs) This is the way it went. I'm going to kill you, and I'm going to leave your body for the birds. The interesting symbolism was that in that cultural time, to be left out for scavengers to take you, Was a sign of being cursed. Ezekiel knew this because he was actually a priest in training before he is called to be a prophet. And imagine Ezekiel, who, very aware of the the purity laws that were required of the priests, is dropped in the middle of bones. And he just feels the weightiness of the place, the devastation of the place. The practice of throwing bodies out in the open to be eaten by wild animals is well attested in ancient Near Eastern sources. And this treatment was especially given to people who broke oaths or covenants. The third reason why this is a striking scene for Ezekiel is that the prophet is surprised at the extreme dryness of these bones, which indicates that the people whose remains these were, have been dead for a long time. This is a climactic portrayal of hopelessness. This is a picture of death and despair in all of their horror, intensity, and finality. The Lord brings Ezekiel to this place of desolation. To this wasteland filled with death. He, and he gives us this text. Why? So that we will know that he has a word for us. When we inevitably find ourselves in similar places of catastrophe. With similar senses of hopelessness. When you're in the valley of an unfavorable diagnosis, there is a word from the Lord. When you're in the valley of joblessness or poverty, there is a word from the Lord. When you're in the valley of heartache or childlessness or relational dysfunction, there is a word from the Lord. And one day when you're in the valley of old age and death seems imminent... There will be a word from the Lord. Never allow the country club Christianity of this land to lead you to believe that God has nothing to say to the sufferer. Many of our neighbors would conclude, based upon our silence in the face of suffering, that God has nothing to say to the sufferer. That God has nothing to say to those who feel the weightiness of injustice. That God has nothing to say to those who seem to be ground up under modernity's greatest efforts. To those who feel the sting and the hopelessness of life's crushing circumstances. Many people would conclude from our silence that God has nothing to say. God has spoken. The entirety of Scripture is addressed to the sufferer. And every page of Scripture finds its resolution and fulfillment in a Savior who suffered. There is a word from the Lord for those in the valley. But once the Lord brings Ezekiel to the valley... He stretches Ezekiel's redemptive imagination, which brings us to our second point a question. Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann says that the task of prophetic ministry is to nurture, nourish, and evoke a consciousness and perception alternative to the consciousness and perception of the dominant culture around us. I'm going to say that again because it's a rich quote. Brueggemann says that the task of prophetic ministry is to nurture, nourish, and evoke a consciousness and perception alternative that is contrary to the perception and consciousness of the dominant culture around us. This is what the Lord works into the prophet by way of a confounding question. The dominant perception in that cultural moment to work out of Brueggemann's quote, the dominant perception in that cultural moment was that all was lost for the people of God. But the Lord begins to evoke an alternative perception in verse 3. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. (laughs) The Lord brings Ezekiel out into this valley filled with bones. He brings Ezekiel out to a cemetery. He brings Ezekiel... To the place filled with death, filled with sun skeletons, and he asks him, Son of man, can these bones live? Can this boneyard pulse with life again? Now, to us, that sounds pretty crazy. But here's the thing you got to appreciate. The ancients were not more gullible on this point than we are. And that's why Ezekiel kind of replies in a way that we aren't sure what he meant. We don't know if he was like, God, you know you got this, or God, you know, I don't. (laughs) We don't know what Ezekiel meant here. But he was no more gullible as it relates to the prospects of a valley filled with bones pulsing with life again. It was ridiculous at one level. Because here's the thing. They had heard of Elijah and Elisha raising people from the dead. But these were people who had recently passed. They still had their body. Decay had not yet set in when they were raised to life. Ezekiel is standing in a valley filled with dry bones. You can't get more hopeless than that. We don't know exactly how this question struck Ezekiel. Did it seem crazy? Did it seem obvious but unlikely? We can't know for sure. But we can certainly appreciate the dynamic when God poses his questions to us. Child of God, can your neighbor come to faith? Can these bones live? Child of God, can that relationship recover? Can can these bones live? Child of God, can you overcome that trauma and flourish? Can, Can these bones live? Child of God, can your child overcome that obstacle and thrive in life? Can these bones live? Child of God, can our neighborhood schools be good and equitable and accessible for all of our city's children? Can these bones live? What if the Lord dropped you down in the middle of America and said, child of God, can these bones live? When we think on these questions, we get a sense of what's happening here. The Lord is inviting Ezekiel to stop gauging his God by his problem and to start gauging his problem by his God. Yes, they were in exile. Yes, they had been captured because of their sin. Yes, their own hearts betrayed them. But the good news was, is, and ever will be that saving power belongs to God. As that theologian and poet laureate Marvin Gaye said, just call his name. He'll be there in a hurry. You don't have to worry because, baby, there ain't no mountain high enough. There ain't no valley low enough. There ain't no river wide enough to keep him from getting to you, to keep him from bringing his redemption and his restoration into your life and into your relationships. This is the kind of God that he is. This is what he's capable of. The Lord is inviting Ezekiel. To reimagine the saving power of God. To lay hold of comfort and hope. And to announce that comfort and hope to God's people. Which brings us to our final point. A comfort. After the Lord brings Ezekiel out into this valley of bones and he poses his question, the Lord then tells him what he's planning to do. And he tells Ezekiel to preach to the bones. To preach to the bones. Ezekiel follows God's command. He anchors his hope in God's word. And then he begins to preach to the bones. He starts preaching in the graveyard. And in the words of Frederick Beekner, the first thing that happened was a sound of rattling and clicking like the tide going out over a million pebble beaches. As the bones started snapping back together. The next thing that happened was a million reassembled skeletons pulling on skin like long winter underwear. The last thing that happened was the color coming back to a million pairs of cheeks. And the spark to a million pairs of eyes. And the breath of life to a million pairs of lungs. What a comfort this was to the people of God. All was not lost. Why? Well, here's why. Because although they may have been in exile and had lacked social power, although they lacked political power, they may have lacked financial power, but God showed them that their thriving did not depend on any of these powers. Their thriving was grounded in the power of God's word and the power of Of God's Spirit. Do you see that this is the axis of transformation and hope in this passage? Ezekiel prophesies to the bones and then he calls on the Spirit to come and bring life. It's like the exact picture of Genesis 2 when the Lord God formed the man and then he wasn't alive yet, he had to breathe into him the breath of life. And the first thing that Adam saw when he opened his eyes was the face of God. This is what we see taking place here in this passage. God is bringing life through his word and through his spirit. And guess what? That is the only way that God ever brings life is through his word and through his spirit. This is the power that we see at work in this text. We see here the power in God's Word. His Word can heal what our words could never heal. His Word can destroy evils that our words could never destroy. And His Word can give hope that our words could never produce. Hope is confident expectation grounded in God's Word. It's that simple. Hope is confident expectation grounded in what God has said. What God has said he would do, who God has told us he would be, hope is confident expectation grounded in God's word. Hope, furthermore, hope is the refusal to accept the majority opinion of reality. Just like Brueggemann said, there may be a dominant perspective on reality, but the, the mind, the imagination that has been held captive by the prophetic word is not limited by the dominant version of reality. Where they can only see ruin, we see redemption through our lenses. Where they can only see estrangement, we can see reunion where they can only see judgment, we can see mercy. Where they can only see self, we can see neighbor. Because we see the present in light of the transcendent reality of God's redeeming work. Listen, you need a better hope than the false hopes peddled in our age. You do. You need a better hope than the false hopes that are being peddled in our age. Think about it. If making the varsity athletic team was not enough to anchor your life back in the day, if the hope of making varsity was not enough to anchor your life, and the hope of getting a boyfriend or a girlfriend was not enough to anchor your life, If getting into the right college was not enough to anchor your life, what makes you think that getting a spouse or a career or children or a house or social recognition is going to be enough to anchor your life? Can't you see that we have been set up by our age to chase after false hopes, false hopes of security? False hopes of meaning and purpose. False hopes of identity and recognition. All of these things lack substance. They cannot provide. We have no reason for any confident expectation on those hopes. It's false hopes. I want to say furthermore that chasing false hopes will only exhaust you and lead you to deeper despair and disorientation, if you try to double down and try harder and be extra diligent and be extra focused and maybe go back to school and maybe get a leg up on your networking, it still won't be enough. It'll still be false hope. As wonderful as scientific and technological advances are, they are false hope. As great as it is to have a functional political system with good candidates, they are a false hope. Human beings are hardwired to long for the hope that only God provides. And Ezekiel invites us into the fullness of hope today. And as we trace the trajectory of this text, that hope gets even brighter. In the fullness of time, the Lord would bring another prophet into the place of desolation and despair. He brought Ezekiel out to the valley of dry bones, but he brought this prophet to Golgotha, the place of the skull. The Lord asked Ezekiel a question, son of man, can these bones live? And his response was, Lord, only you know. But when this question came to the Son of God, the true and greater prophet, he answered that question, Can these bones live? with this reply I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he die, yet he will live. I am. The Alpha and the Omega, the First and the Last, the Beginning and the End. I hold in my hand the keys to death and Hades. And to say that he holds the keys is to say that he has authority over death and Hades. He replies to this question with a resounding hope in his power to bring resurrection, hope, and life. The only hope that can anchor your life, friends, is resurrection hope. That's it. There is one brand of hope that will do, and that is resurrection hope. Jesus offers us so much more than the baseless optimism of our age. Have you noticed that that's one of the ways That modern people kind of evade the uncomfortable scenarios where they're dealing with someone who's in hard times. And they just offer a baseless optimism. Just hang in there. It's going to get better. They don't know that. It could get worse. Much worse. Ask Job. It can get rough. And it is a false It's a false optimism. It's a baseless optimism. It's false hope to just show up and tell people this substanceless hallmark card. It'll get better. Hang in there. You know, this is one thing that our society gives us. The other thing that we see when it's not a baseless optimism, it's a hardened cynicism. I don't hold out any hope. I don't have any hopes for anything out there. I just, I'm curmudgeon. It ain't going to get better. It can't get better. If I harden myself like that, then I can't be hurt or disappointed. But the gospel offers us something that's not in the middle of the two, but rather transcends the two. And that is a realism that is in touch with the pain and the suffering and the brokenness and the disappointments of this world, but a realism that is never taken captive to despair. I like how Cornel West says it. He says, I'm not an optimist, but I'm a prisoner of hope. (laughs) Hope won't let me go. I like that. And that is a, a faithful depiction of Christian spirituality. We don't offer people baseless optimism. Our hope is grounded in the resurrection, the stubborn fact of the resurrection. See, the issue with Christianity is not whether you like it or not, but is it true? It's not whether you understand it and it makes sense to you or not. The question is, is it true? We say that the resurrection is the guarantee that everything that we've been given in these pages is the word of God. That is the power of God for salvation for all who believe, for the Jew first and also for the Greek, as Paul puts it. Because in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith faith, And that's why it is written, the just shall live by faith. We wind up this series on salvation's greatest hits. But I want to leave you with a few takeaways from our text today, but also from our series. First, when you're in the valley, set your hopes on God, not on the false promises of modernity. That tell you that if you get your techniques together, you can dig your way out. That tell you with enough time and research, we can solve the problem. Our deepest problems cannot be handled by anything the world has to offer. So when you're in the valley, look for the power of God's word to bring life in the place of death and despair. Second, I don't know what kind of dry bones you're looking at today. But I want to encourage you to entrust those dry bones to the Lord. It's not. It's not baseless to look at the world, to look at society, and to call on the Lord to make the bones live. You know why? Because God isn't just saving souls. He's renewing the entire creation. And one day, every square inch of the cosmos will be new. And so we have great reason to ask the Lord to begin that work, to anticipate that work in whatever small ways he can do it in the circumstances surrounding us. Trust God with your dry bones. I want you to take the prophetic word to heart that you may nourish, nurture, and evoke an alternative perception to the dominant culture concerning what's possible what is achievable what's worth doing because a lot of times people in our in our age they don't take up works that seem doomed to failure because that doesn't fit their self narrative no one takes on projects that are doomed to failure so what do you do when it seems like it's a project doomed to failure to care for your neighbors who are in broken situations you stay distant Right. But that that is not what we've been given the prophetic word for. It's supposed to reorient our imaginations and we have an alternative consciousness and perception of what can happen, what can be done. We can go through story after story in scripture and story after story in the history of the church and gain confidence through all of the seeming impossibilities that the Lord worked in. So take the prophetic word to heart and allow the fear and the hand-wringing and the anxieties of our age to take their proper place. But most of all, I want us to be a people that knows how to herald the various contours and dynamics of God's salvation. The scripture's speak of the manifold excellencies of Jesus Christ, which is to say that he's like a gem who when you turn that gem, there are countless glimmers and gleams and sparkles and brilliance that comes from seeing the different angles and different light hitting it. And I want you and I to think about the various ways that we can bring the salvation of God to bear in the lives of our friends. He gives us hope in the context of despair. He gives us freedom in the context of enslavement and addiction. He gives light in the context of darkness. He gives transformation in the context of being stuck in sin and error. He brings blessing in the context of the curse. Let us take up our role as a good news people in a bad news world by being more attuned to the good news of God's story than the daily news with all of its heartache and all of its shock treatment. Let us press on in ordinary faithfulness that we may be able to share with others salvation's greatest hits. Amen. Let's pray. Grace Mosaic. For more information about our church, visit us online at Grace